Take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14. Our text is actually found in the promise of forgiveness today. It's John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. We could, in fact, choose any number of texts for our meditation today. Because do not be afraid or do not fear is the most repeated commandment we find in Scripture. From Abraham, when he was still Abram, in Genesis 15.1, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. To John, in the book of Revelation, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. To his disciples, before his crucifixion, our text, where Jesus tells them, Do not be afraid. And then after his resurrection, recorded in Matthew 28, um, some women who had gone to the tomb, and they find out that he's not there. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. In an age in which there seems to be so much that we can be afraid of, how are we as God's people to obey this most repeated command? Do not be afraid. One could argue that in a culture of fear, as the one in which we live, this sounds almost cruel, this expectation that we should not be afraid. It seems unrealistic. But if we take scripture seriously, how are we, God's people, not to fear in a culture of fear? Today, in a meditation on fear, I would have you consider four questions and the answers to them. The first question is, what is fear? What is fear? Is it an emotional state or condition? I think our first impulse is, in fact, to see fear as a feeling, an emotion. Google it and you'll find some of the following. Fear is an emotion induced by a perceived threat that causes entities to quickly pull away from it and usually hide. It is a basic survival mechanism. Another place, fear is a powerful and primitive human emotion. It alerts us to the presence of danger and was critical in keeping our ancestors alive. It's interesting, keeping them alive says nothing about us. Another place says, the primitive, complicated, essential emotion called fear. So it would seem that people would see fear as a feeling. Then the question comes up, if I'm told, do not be afraid, how do I control my feelings? That seems harsh and maybe unrealistic. By the way, people, I think, would argue the same thing when we are told that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we see love as an emotion, it's like my feelings, I can't control my feelings. How are you telling me to somehow direct my feelings in a particular way? This seems somewhat frustrating and certainly unfair and unjust. So is it an emotional state? Interestingly enough, in literature, at least in modern literature, 
fear is often portrayed as a matter of the mind, a mental state, that it's much more mental than it is emotional. Um, if you know Frank Herbert's writings at all in Dune, the Dune series, you have the, uh, the sisterhood, the Bene Gesserit witches. They have the litany against fear, an incantation that they say. It's almost sort of a long mantra in which to protect themselves against fear in times of peril. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I remain. In a more recent novel, it was made into a movie, The Life of Pi by Jan Martel, the main character does an aside, almost a soliloquy on fear. I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous adversary, how well I know. It has no decency, respects no law or convention, shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it finds with unerring ease. It begins in your mind always. So on the one hand, we are told that fear is, in fact, a feeling, an emotional uh, issue. But then others would say that, in fact, it is a mental issue. It is a matter of the mind. I think there's something to both. But I would suggest a third thing with regard to fear. What if, in fact, it is a moral issue? I would suggest to you that, in fact, fear is a moral issue in that it shapes the kind of people we are that we become. The kind of people we become has a lot to do with how we see the world around us. How we view the world shapes how we respond, how we react, how we act in the world. For some reason today, when dealing with ethics, the first question oftentimes is not what is good, what is right, but rather what is happening, what is going on. That is to say, before we can apply a command how we are to act in a particular situation, we need to understand the situation, what's going on around us. Reading the signs of the times itself is in fact a moral act. To live well means we need to know how God has acted and is acting in history and in our lives. But what if in fact we cannot discern, it's simply not clear to us how God is acting in our lives or in history? What if, in fact, we don't see a narrative, a story, but simply random, uh, chaotic, and threatening acts? How we fear, how much we fear, what we fear and when we fear, is usually something that we learn. This is something that we are taught and that we learn. And what we find in Scripture is that our passions are not simply some things that we have, but things that are shaped, that are formed. So we can be shaped to feel passions the right way, at the right time, to the right extent, or the wrong way and to the wrong extent. I think something we should be clear about here as we try to figure out what fear is, emotional state, a mental state, a moral issue, 
Fear is not in and of itself evil. It's not a vice. It's not wrong to fear, we will see in a moment. But wrong fear, excessive fear, can tempt us to go in directions we should not go, including rage and violence. I spoke on fear about five years ago and I mentioned a story um, that uh, a Lutheran pastor, this is in the early 30s, um, with a group of pastors went to meet the new chancellor and uh, Adolf Hitler was that man. And when he came home, his wife said, so how did it go? What was that about? And he said, I've come to see that Herr Hitler is a very frightened man. I think we would not see that, but the reality is that fear led to violence, and it can in our lives. More than that, fear can cause us to not do the things that we should, such as being generous and making peace with others and being hospitable. An American ethicist, Richard Niebuhr, said, "We, we see ourselves surrounded by animosity Hence, the color of our lives is anxiety, and self-preservation is our first law. In a culture of fear, the answer to the question, what is going on, is we are in danger. We are in danger. And if we accept this as the definition of reality, then, in fact, self-preservation becomes everything that we are about. And fear is what directs that sense of self-preservation. Fear becomes the background noise, perhaps the soundtrack to our lives. We are told that fear provokes one of two responses, fight or flight. Either we attack the thing that we perceive to be threatening us, or we withdraw. We flee from danger. But in either case, safety becomes the all-consuming goal. So, what is fear? Is it an emotional state? Is it a mental state? Is it a moral issue? Yes to all three. But there is more. The second question I would have you consider in this meditation is, what are the roots of fear? Where does it come from? Have you consider three different things. The first are the biblical roots of fear. The first time that we read of someone being afraid is Adam after he and Eve had broken God's commandments. They had been put in the Garden of Eden so that they could learn obedience. Uh, And for a time they were obedient. Adam named the animals. Um, But then they disobeyed God. They disobeyed God. You see, they were confronted with a test. Were they willing to be creatures? Or in fact, did they want to be self-created? Did they want to be their own gods? And in fact, that's what the serpent promised them. You will be like God. Human beings were created to live in community. They were supposed to be as God is, three in one. We are supposed to image God. We are the image bearers of God. Which means, by the way, I don't think we can do this by ourselves, on our own. We are to do it in community as a group of people. But the first two human beings were not content with this. 
They, in fact, did not want to reflect the goodness of God. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be self-created. They wanted to be in charge. So after they had eaten, uh, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. They were afraid. They had lived in transparency with one another, that they were naked, they were laid bare to one another and to God, but because of their sin, suddenly they are now afraid. Transparency now becomes a threat. They are no longer secure. Instead of being recipients of God's gifts, they wanted to become possessors and masters of those gifts. And the result is fear. Because suddenly you're putting yourself in a place that you're never meant to be. Somehow you're self-created. And fear is the natural response. And why is it we're afraid? Because the only option for us ultimately is to fail. We will always fail. We fear so many things because of failure. We fear death, interestingly enough, because we are not content to receive life as a gift. We don't see life as something coming from God. We see it as something that we possess. Therefore, we fear death. We fear God's presence. Because when God is present, we know we are not God. Fear is a part of who we are since Adam and Eve sinned. And therefore it is this most repeated command in scripture. Do not be afraid. One more thing. Adam and Eve were promised by the serpent, you will be like God. The reality is, they bore the image of God already, but they were not happy with that. And so they disobeyed, and fear became the result. These are the biblical roots of fear. But living when and where we do, what are the political roots of fear? Beginning in the 17th century, when European nations began to organize themselves as independent political entities, at that point they'd been scattered uh, entities throughout Europe, Um, the question was how do you keep these nation states whole how do you you know if you have 20 counties that's one thing and then one state but if you have these 20 kingdoms princedoms and suddenly you make them all one nation how do you pull that off how do you get people to be all on the same page the answer is fear Now, prior to the 17th century, fear was certainly how kings ruled their subjects. Um, You know, if you you step out of line, the king's going to chop off your head or something like that. But now we have the modern nation state. And how do you get people to agree? You make them afraid, not of the king, not of the president, whatever you have. You make them afraid of anarchy, chaos. And so the answer is, beginning in the 17th century, we need to work together so that this doesn't all fall apart 
and chaos or anarchy takes over. The glue that holds the modern nation state together is fear. As a people, we never feel focused or united as we do when we have a common enemy, that which we fight against. And I would argue that politicians are very aware of this, and they are always ready and willing to ratchet up the fear dial to make sure that we go on their side. And it is interesting, whether from the left or to the right, safety is the predominant issue. So from the left, no guns. From the right, guns. But in both cases, they're saying safety, safety, safety. Can't have anarchy. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And so living when and where we do, here we are in the United States in 2019. Fear is very much a part of our culture. Politically, but culturally, what are the cultural roots of fear? One of the things about being Americans is that we all tend to come from different places and we don't share a common story. You know, if you lived in another country where your family had been there for centuries and centuries, you shared a mythology, uh, the folk tales, all these stories, this narrative. You know, so-and-so came here 200 years ago and founded this village and we've been here ever since and we farm and we do all these things. Uh, in this country, we don't have that. We all come from different places. We all have our stories. But we need to have a story that we share. And you know what that story is? Fear. Fear becomes the story that we share. We don't have common goods or common goals. Fewer and fewer people today believe that history, in fact, is going somewhere. It's certainly not going anywhere good. And so, as people have turned against God, and as they have now been cut off from the place where they originally came from, we need a story to bind us together, and the story is fear. I teach history, and one of the interesting things is that people are rejecting history because it is a story that they don't feel a part of, but they also see it as, oh, you're only telling that story because you want to make us afraid, because you want power. And instead, another story has come up in which people try to create fear. In the 19th century, two possibilities came up. One was Marx, the other was Darwin. These are new stories, hopefully to bind people together. Marx is a political story to get us all to a place where the humanity will be as it should be. And Darwin is telling us that, in fact, we are all evolving and we are going to a higher place. But the 20th century really called that into question. Think of the millions and millions and millions who died in the 20th century. and people become even more afraid. So, what is the answer? How do we deal with fear? Several options present themselves, and these are the last two questions I would have you consider. The first is, this is question number three, is fearlessness the answer? Should we, in fact, be fearless? Should we be like the Bene Gesserit witches and say, I will not fear? Fear is the mind killer. Remember, fear is not evil. It's not a vice. It's not wrong to fear certain things. We'll see in a few moments. 
But excessive fear, disordered fear, can tempt us to go in the wrong direction. But I would suggest to you that fearlessness is not the answer. Thomas Aquinas argued that we can become fearless in one of three ways and none of them are right. None of them are good. The first is we can become fearless through a lack of love. That is, we love nothing enough to fear its loss. So if I have no love, then in fact, I won't fear losing it. I had it in my notes and then I took it out, but for those of you familiar with the whole Star Wars saga, the story of Anakin Skywalker, he fell in love with the queen, you remember? But he had to keep it a secret. For the Jedis, they could not love. Because if you love, then you fear loss. And fear leads to the dark side. So to be on the right side, according to the Jedi, you must not love. Well, certainly from scripture, that's not right. The two great commandments, we're to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. But if you want to be fearless, don't ever love anybody. Then you won't fear losing them. The second way that you can become fearless is through dullness of understanding. That is, you don't realize there are things you're supposed to be afraid of. You're just really stupid. The third is through pride of soul. That is, you refuse to believe that you are vulnerable, that you are susceptible to loss. Uh, Scott Bader Sayer, who's written a book on fear, Christians, I found very helpful. He says in contemporary terms, these three things are the security of detachment, just be detached. Secondly, the bliss of ignorance. You know, what you don't know can't hurt you. And thirdly, the pursuit of invulnerability. Fearlessness is not a virtue. It is, in fact, a vice. We are to fear evil when it threatens the things that we love, the ones that we love, our family, our friends, our community the peace of our community, and life itself. The only way, I think, to avoid fear then is to not love, to not care about your family or your friends or your community. If you love nothing, you have nothing to fear. But this is not right. This is not biblical. What is dangerous and destructive is not fear, but excessive fear, wrong fear. If, in fact, we love someone, in that love we plant the seeds of sorrow because one day we will lose the person that we love. Either we will go first or they will go before us. But it isn't all darkness because with this comes a recognition not only of limitation, but of gratitude, that we have in fact love for this person, they have love for us, perhaps for a short time or a longer time, we don't know, but we are to be grateful for what God has given us. If fear is born of love, then fear can also awaken us to loves, loves that we have taken for granted, that we have overlooked or forgotten. I think it is when our loves are the most threatened that we see them most clearly. Fear awakens us to the reality of love in our life. 
A side note. In Scripture, we read about the fear of the Lord. It comes into play here. Subject, I think, for another meditation. But as one writer put it, from a biblical perspective, there is nothing neurotic about fearing God. The neurotic thing is not to be afraid or to be afraid of the wrong thing. That is why God chooses to be known to us so that we may stop being afraid of the wrong thing. When God is fully revealed to us and we get it, then we experience the conversion of our fear. What this means in part is that God does not want us to fear the things of this life that will seek to manipulate and control and coerce us, but rather we are to fear God. He is the source of all life. He is the one who sustains us. Same writer said, the fear of the Lord is the deeply sane recognition that we are not God. How true that is. The last hymn we sang today is Amazing Grace. Familiar enough. I don't know if you remember the second verse. Twas grace that taught my fear, my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. What we hear in the words of the hymn is that we need to be taught to fear. We are to fear the Lord our God. More correctly, we are taught to fear well. But at the same time, it relieves our fears of the things that we are fearing that we should not. Our excessive fears. Grace puts fear in its place. It teaches us to fear the Lord our God and not to let fear control us. You see, oftentimes we fear what we should not fear, and oftentimes we fear as we should not fear. In an interview, uh, a radio talk show host uh, interviewed uh, N.T. Wright, who was formerly the Bishop of Durham. This is what the host said. Now I wonder how you maintain your hopefulness and your hope of the forgiveness against the, the backdrop of chemical weapons being used in Syria, of a North Korean despot who has starved his own people, of massive, just terrible things around the world, almost a crescendoing of evil, and the almost near certainty that nuclear weapons will be used, if not in our lifetimes, then shortly thereafter. Bishop Wright, how do you maintain that? His answer, my hope is not built on the observation of stuff that is going on, going on in the world at the moment. My hope is firmly built, built firmly on the fact that three days after he was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth rose again bodily from the dead. That is the basis of everything. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I simply believe that Jesus rose again and that what God did for Jesus at Easter, God will do for all his people at the end. And God will actually do for the whole of creation at the end. Fearlessness is not the answer. So question number four, where do we look for the answer? Again, this is a meditation in itself, but three things to consider that I would have you consider. First of all, community. We live in a culture of fear, but we also live in a culture of disconnection. Particularly as Americans, I think this is part of our, our national consciousness. We prize individual achievement. We want to stand out from the crowd. 
And yet at the same time we want to belong to something. Have you ever noticed how that people will try to do something that sets them apart, but then join a group of people who do the same thing? Um, remember John Schreiner saying years ago when U2 was first an up-and-coming group, uh, they sang at the sports arena, and John said it was almost humorous to see 15,000 people in trench coats, you know, trying to look like Bono. Um, or people who do tattoos, they want to look different, but then they join a club in which people do that. Um, we want to be unique, and yet we want to belong. And in a culture of disconnection, um, I think community is in fact something we should consider. How can we not be fearful or anxious if we don't belong to something, if we lack connection not only to the present but also to the past? Let's put it another way. The absence of community, both the community of the dead, that's what we would call tradition, and the community of the living, adds to our fear. If we have no connection to our past, our tradition, and no connection to the present, then the only possible thing that we can have is fear. The absence of community also means a sense that resources are scarce, that we cannot count on others in time of need. And the result is we tend to lack the courage to the extent that we lack community. It's not a mathematical formula, but if we do not have a sense of community, I think the amount of fear we have rises. Unless we have no love and we don't care about anyone, then we maintain a certain aura of fearlessness. If we are to recover courageous living in the face of fear, we need to recover the kind of community that can help us, that can be capable of supporting us in that time. As a group, as a community, as a congregation, we can often bear risks together. Things that we would be reluctant to face on our own. One of the things that the church does, the, the Christian community, is to provide a place for us to weigh judgment together about what we should do. What is the right thing? What is the courageous thing to do? You see, we don't have to make these decisions on our own which in of itself is a fearful enterprise, but we have others that we can talk to, that we can ask for wisdom. What do you think I should do in this situation? Do you have insight? Can you help me as I try to make decisions? Beyond that, I think the church can also be a place where we can speak our fears, when we can say to one another, this is something I am concerned about, something I am fearful of our time for prayer, when we speak publicly of things that we are thankful for, yes, but also of specific needs, where things have gone not as we expected, perhaps they've gone wrong. The church is a place where we can share, where we can give voice to our fears. I think sometimes, however, we think church is a place where we hide our fears, where we come and we pretend like everything is okay, that everything is fine. We want to make ourselves presentable not only to God, but to one another. And so we do not speak of the things that trouble us. We hide the dark stuff of our lives behind a hug and a handshake. 
Our culture does not appreciate vulnerability. It's a sign of weakness. That has come into the church. And so we don't want to appear to be vulnerable. We want to present to the world that we have the strength of the Lord on our side and we are okay. We need to give words to our fears. We ought to exist as a group of people in which we can speak honestly to one another. Where we can speak about our fears because we believe that our fears no longer control us. And by the way, if you think about it, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, the whole matter of baptism. In baptism, we have died with the Lord Jesus. That's what it symbolizes. We've already faced death, our greatest fear. And we've seen it overcome as we come out of the water, as Jesus was raised from the dead, as Bishop Wright put it. What God did for Jesus, he's going to do for us. We need not fear. If we follow the example of Jesus, we see this. The church is to be a place of shared risks. So when one is afraid of losing one's job, or one is afraid of a particular illness, an emergency, the church is to be there. So that one need not fear. One can in fact face these situations not alone, but with the church, and not be afraid. One more thing about community. There can be no solution to the problem of fear without the existence of communities capable of bearing fear together. We just cannot do it. So fearlessness is not the answer. One of the answers is, in fact, community. Another answer is that of providence. Providence is a fancy word meaning God's provision. And if you read scripture, we find God providing time and time and time again for his people. A ram for Abraham when he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Manna every day for the Israelites in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit to a group of fearful disciples on the day of Pentecost. You read scripture and it's full of God's providence. And yet, for some reason, we don't think it applies to us. don't want to diverge too much, but because we are modern people, we think in terms of cause and effect. And we think we've got it all figured out. So when something happens to us, we analyze and, and we come up with a solution. Or we imagine that we do. And the fact of God's providence seems otherworldly. It doesn't seem real. And as a result, we are fearful. In the past, I think the church embraced providence far more than we do before the modern age. It's not that their lives were wonderful. In fact, I think I'd rather be alive now than a thousand years ago. If nothing else, for, nothing else for health reasons. But they believed that God was still the king of history. No matter what happened to them, God was still in control. But we've lost that story. We don't share the story, so we become afraid. See, providence at its core is the belief, in fact, that there is a coherent story. It is a drama in which God and those made in his image together 
are driving the story towards its proper conclusion, the new creation. Providence is the conviction that through all things, God's story cannot be lost. Isaac Denison, uh, that's her pen name. Uh, she wrote Out of Africa. You're familiar with the movie. Actually, she did a lot of writing. But one amazing thing she said is, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. Narrative gives form to our suffering. If we only suffer and there's no sense of a story of God's providence, then it, it just blows up. It's fragmented. We won't necessarily understand what is happening to us and why it's happening to us, but we know that God is in fact in charge and he is telling the story and it is leading us to the new creation. The third thing, where is the answer? Vulnerability. See, when I speak on providence, we might be tempted to think, oh, this means that all I have to do is pray and God will give me everything I want. He'll provide everything that I need so nothing bad will happen to me. Therefore, I don't need to be afraid. No, providence does not uh, promise security. And remember, safety is what we're all about in a fearful generation. Safety and security have become the idols for many people. And so for a Christian to be vulnerable, I think it's really counterintuitive. We think, in fact, we must be secure. And we can, and there are many who boast to the world, God will take care of me. Nothing bad can happen to me. That's why I'm not afraid. But that's not what providence is about. There is, in fact, the reality of being vulnerable. We want promises from God that will keep us safe. And by the way, if God doesn't make those promises, politicians will. Every campaign season, they make promises that they can't possibly fulfill. The reality is, as God's people, we are to be marked by vulnerability. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then in 2 Corinthians, he said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What we find in scripture is, in fact, a reversal. It's a paradox of strength and weakness. And what we find is that rather than trying to overcome human weakness, God works through it. What we find in scripture is that when we seek to be strong, we, in fact, become weak because that's our weakness. Somehow we imagine that we can handle this on our own. But when we become weak, when we say, I can't do this, then in fact God can work through us and then we are strong. The gospel displays this truth in the person of Jesus. The cross reveals his power, which is the power of vulnerable love. Consider the final events in the life of Jesus before his death. Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. God did not block the actions of Judas Iscariot. Jesus was arrested by the temple guard. Jesus did not, or God did not block their actions. Peter tried to by cutting off, taking a sword and cutting off the ear of one of the uh, servants. Uh, no, God did not. God did not, in fact, block that. 
Jesus was put on trial in front of a number of human powers and God did not block their actions. Jesus was scourged. God did not block that action. Jesus was crucified. God allowed that to happen. Did not block it. He was mocked. He died. God did not block Here is weakness. Here is vulnerability. But God did not let death win. The resurrection displays how God does act in human history. Think for a moment that if God had blocked any of the actions that I've just mentioned at the last in the life of Jesus, there would be no resurrection. Without the death of Jesus, there is no resurrection. If and when God does not block human evil and suffering, we should understand that God will not necessarily protect us from every harm. Rather, we should understand that God will, in fact, provide what we need as we go along, and he will redeem what we have lost along the way. Could this be what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount? Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. In other words, don't be fearful. What you will eat or drink, or about your body what you will wear, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. Don't be fearful about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In this, Jesus addresses our fears and our insecurities but he also points out our vulnerabilities. To the extent that we seek to secure our own safety and security, to have our own goods, what we are going to eat or drink or what we're going to wear, we then make the mistake of seeing those as primary rather than secondary. Security becomes the all-important thing. We want to be safe. Living in a culture of fear, this can easily happen. So, have you consider for meditation, what is fear? Emotion, mental, emotional, mental, or is it moral? What are the roots of fear? Biblically, politically, culturally? Is fearlessness the answer? No, it's not. Then where does the answer come from? From community, from God's providence, and from a sense of vulnerability. Bad things, in fact, may happen to us but God will be with us there every step of the way.
One last thing. If we love, if we love someone, then there is always the possibility of loss, which brings with it a certain amount of fear. But God will be with us every step of the way. Every step of the way. And so we hear the command of Scripture do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are afraid. We do fear. We need to hear your command over and over again do not be afraid. It seems that the news thrives on trying to make us fearful. Politicians make a living out of making us fearful. But we are your people. May we hear the command repeated over and over and over again in Scripture do not be afraid. May we trust in you as a community, as a congregation. May we stand with one another and know that you will provide what we need. Doesn't mean that things won't happen to us, but you are there every step of the way. Just as you were with Jesus as he suffered horribly. But it wasn't the end of the story. You in fact raised him from the dead. As you will do with us. The end of time. I thank you that you love us. May we love knowing that there is the possibility of loss, but trust you. Help us to think on these things, to meditate on them in the days to come. I thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for Mike as he travels. You would give him safety. Uh, For Jerry Nobley as well. Keep us safe through this week. It's not the highest good. May it not be an idol to us, but we look to you as the one who gives all good and perfect gifts. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.